doing a little more of a teach today than a preach, because we're starting a new series, and the new series is called Hebrews, and the tagline of that new series is the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus, the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus. I want to take a quick poll of the room. If you have your notebooks with you, or you uh, use like Google Keep or something like Evernote on your phone, I want you to just hold it up. I want to get a bit of a poll of the room. Bit of a poll of the room. Who's taking notes today? All right. Today will be the day to take notes, because it's going to be a lot less in terms of me giving you just one thing and us going home. In order to step into a series where we take a journey through a book or a letter that we find in the Bible, we have to have an understanding of a few key things before we can even take that journey. And that's called context. We need to understand context if we're going to understand Scripture. And so let's take that journey together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the writer of Hebrews as we discover whoever that was. We don't know, but Lord God, we thank you for them. And Lord, we pray as we take a journey through Hebrews that your word would come alive to us, that you would teach us deeper revelation of who you are, who the Son is in Jesus. But Lord, you would also teach us something profound about who we are as a result of salvation and your lordship in our lives. And so, Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. I I am so excited. Exegetical series are my favorite thing. Now, if you're new to faith and perhaps new to church and some of the language we use, exegetical literally just means this, critical explanation or interpretation of a text. Critical explanation or interpretation of a text. And so we can't, we can't just come to Scripture and just read it. We have to ask some questions. We have to frame it in a way that we understand what was originally intended, and then as a result of those principles and those lessons, what it means for us today. And so part of today is about creating a framework that we can take the rest of this journey on. Everybody following with me? Are you with me? So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Hebrews. It's in the New Testament. And as I said, I I did pull out the teaching stool, and so we are going to be doing more of a teach today. And I think sometimes when we preach, and, and there's a small distinction sometimes. When we preach, we're trying to just inspire. We're trying to just make one thing kind of stick in your minds and in your hearts and your souls that will bring change. But when you teach, you take what is complex and you unpack it precept upon precept, layer upon layer. It's a different way of walking through. And so if you are a note taker in this room today, uh, that's good. I'm so glad that we have some note takers here. A fun fact about Pastor Marcus, by the way, this is his favorite book of the Bible. And so he was so excited when we settled on Hebrews as our next series. Uh, This is his favorite book of the Bible. So let's dive in. Did you know that Hebrews was a hotly contested book by those who put the canon of Scripture together? Did you know that? 
It wasn't until about the 4th century that Hebrews became uncontested as a letter, as a part of the canon of Scripture. Now, if you're, if you're new to this language, the canon talks about the collection. The collection. They were critically uh, studied and determined to be in symmetry with the rest of the Bible. And so what happened when the New Testament came, when the new church came, when Jesus kind of died and rose again and began this movement, they had the Old Testament. The Old Testament was uncontested. The Old Testament was firm. But then they had to determine what of all the collections of writing and communication in this new era of the church is Scripture. And so you had these letters floating around. You had letters, Paul wrote a whole lot of them. And they're floating around from church to church, and they're using these letters to teach what it meant that Jesus came, and what it meant for the church, and what it meant for the mission. And so they began to collect these letters, and in councils, they had to determine which of these letters are consistent with both the Old Testament, the teachings of Jesus, and the teachings of the apostles. And so they went through this painstaking. They met many, many times to determine which of these letters was going to be a part of our Bible, our collection of books, so that we can study and walk in the Christian faith. It wasn't until the fourth century that Hebrews was finally settled on. There's a few reasons that that was the case. Uh, Hebrews is, is a bit of an enigma. No one knows who wrote it, when it was written, though we can make some guesses based on the contents of Hebrews, and no one really knows who it was written for. Now, if you know anything about good hermeneutics, which is the study of Scripture, the exe exegetical process, the critical, right, critically thinking through, you know that there's a few questions you need to ask in order to have context, to, in order to really understand the book. One question is, who wrote it? One question is, who was the audience? Who is it written for? And then another question might be, when was it written? What were the circumstances of the era and the time in which it was written? Answers to these questions give us what we call context. With Hebrews, we don't have any answers to those questions. And so the context becomes very, very hard. And so the study of Hebrews becomes that much harder. And so for a long time, it was contested whether Hebrews should be in the biblical canon. A great deal of emphasis uh, was put into relationship when it came to these letters and these books on the ability for someone to write in an informed way because they either knew someone who witnessed it or they, even better yet, witnessed it themselves or they had corroborating witnesses. And so this is kind of the best way. And so many of the letters that you see in the New Testament are eyewitnesses or, in the case of Paul, Paul was a contemporary of all the eyewitnesses and was in proximity to them and could ask some questions and learn from them. And so it was much more authoritative. But as we look at Hebrews, 
we kind of begin to understand that Hebrews was written more for a second generation Christian church than the first generation of the Christian church. So what that means, the implication of that is that the eyewitnesses, the people that actually saw Jesus, knew Jesus, watched the gospels play out, were most likely dead. They most likely passed on. And so the writer of Hebrews is writing to a new generation of Christians that didn't see it, and they've only heard of what has happened. And so they're bringing this together for a new generation of Christians. Uh, we, that, that's our best guess. Hebrews 2.3 says, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, so referring to Jesus, and it was attested to us by those who heard. So the implication of this is they didn't witness it themselves. They heard from others who witnessed it. It was most likely written in a time between persecutions uh, to an audience who did not know active persecution to the point of death. Um, and, 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 but they're, they're now living in a time where faith is not popular in the mainstream culture. And they're facing some hardships as a result of it. So they're not being persecuted where they're being killed for their faith. But their faith is not popular in mainstream culture. And they are facing kind of low-grade persecution as a result of it. Uh, in Hebrews 12, verse 4, it says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So we see there's no bloodshed in this generation. And so this gives us some guesses of when this might have been written. In Hebrews 10, 32 to 34, it says, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your prosperity and property, since you knew that you yourselves had better possession and an abiding one. I would say there's some similarities here between the audience, the recipients of this letter, and perhaps our moment in culture today. I think our cultural moment might have some similarities here. Because if you're vocal about your faith in our culture, you might receive some reproach. Just maybe. Just maybe. So though they did not know martyrdom, they were acquainted with the cost of their faith in these early days. I think in the season of the church in the West, I think it behooves us to lean into the message of Hebrews. I think the author of Hebrews is writing to a very similar church. Many of you in this room, you, you, you sit here and you've seen great movements of the church, great movements of God, the glory of God descending in, in powerful, palpable ways. But there's a new generation sitting here today and you haven't witnessed it. You can only hear stories of it. You've only heard your grandparents talk of those moments and those times. And perhaps you haven't witnessed it for yourself. I would say we need to think maybe hard about leaning into what the author of Hebrews has to say. Because the audience is very similar to 
to our generation. So what are the theories on who wrote Hebrews? So we're talking about when, but we also need to know who wrote Hebrews. And, and like I said, there's only theories. Now, for a long time, interestingly enough, for a long time, the, the popular opinion was that Paul wrote Hebrews. But that opinion is waning as of late. And, and here's why. Because there was so much talk and debate about whether Hebrews is going to be in the scriptures or not, whether it's going to be part of the canon or not, in the early days, the theory is that people took Hebrews and lumped it in with Paul's letters because it was just going to be easier to have a name like Paul attached to the letter to make the passing grade. Does that make sense? But the problem is, Paul's letters were written very, very, very differently than the letter of Hebrews. In fact, Hebrews has the most complex Greek in the entire New Testament. It is the most well-versed Greek letter we have in the New Testament. And because of this, most agree that it's not Paul's writing. So who? The writer, the writer needed to be someone who understood the Greek perspectives because the writer really touches on the Greek perspectives when it comes to faith in Jesus. He really touches on it, or she. But the, the, the writer also had a good understanding of the sacrificial Jewish system, the law, and the way that played out over time, and the way that played into the, the culture to which they're writing. And so here we have just some clues as to who might have written the letter of Hebrews. And here's just some theories. They don't carry any weight, but sometimes it can be fun to explore these things. Anybody else having fun? Only me? I geek out with this stuff. I really geek out with this stuff, so bear with me. The third, first theory is Barnabas. Barnabas. And there's some reasons why Barnabas is in kind of the running for perhaps being the author of Hebrews. He was a native of Cyprus. And what's interesting about Cyprus, the region of Cyprus, it was famous for their excellence in Greek. Those that came from Cyprus were very proficient in the Greek language. They were very well versed, both, both in the spoken language, but in the written Greek language. And, and Barnabas also had this nickname. Do you know what the nickname was? Come on, friends. Encourager. Barnabas had this nickname. He was called the Encourager. And what's interesting, in Hebrews 13, 22, the author says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation. That word translated there is character or encouragement. For I have written to you briefly. And finally, Barnabas would have been well-versed in understanding the sacrificial system of the Jews. He would have understood the sacrificial of the system of the Jews, and, and he would have been able to kind of theme and compare and contrast Jesus and the law, Jesus and the Old Testament way. But there's another character that we find in the New Testament that very well could have written Hebrews as well. His name's Apollos. Some of you guys remember Apollos. 
there was a bit of a kerfuffle um, in the church. And some were saying, I'm a disciple of Paul. And others were saying, I'm a disciple of Apollos. And there's two camps, and Paul had to address it and basically say, it doesn't matter who. It's all about Jesus. You're an apprentice and disciple of Jesus. And so Apollos, what's interesting about Apollos, he was born in Alexandria with a very high upbringing. He, he was an eloquent, intellectual man who was very well-versed in Scripture. And when we parallel some of the writings that come out of Alexandria and this Hebrew letter, we see that a lot of the arguments, the structures of the arguments, the structure of the thesis is very similar to a lot of the writings that came out of Alexandria. And so Apollos, again, would have had an understanding of the Greek perspective, but also an understanding of the Jewish perspective. But there's a third theory, and this is my favorite one. Not because I think it's the most likely, because it's just sort of the most romantic. It's the most sort of uh, exciting for me. And the third theory is that Hebrews was co-written by Aquila and Priscilla, who were the leaders of a home church in Rome. And this is a theory that comes from the German scholar Adolf von Hartnack. And he thought that the letter was co-written but primarily written by Aquila because Aquila, she was a teacher. She had a gift of teaching. Uh, William Barclay, he writes this about Harnack's theory. He says this, Aquila was a teacher. Their house in Rome was a church in itself. Harnack thought that that is why the letter begins with no greetings and the writer's name has vanished because the main author of Hebrews was a woman and a woman was not allowed to teach. And so the theory of why there's no name associated is perhaps Aquila wrote it and because of the culture and the, and, and the time, it was more powerful to leave her name out of it than to attach it to it. I, that's my favorite theory. But again, at the end of the day, they're all just theories. We can't really nail down who wrote it uh, on this side of heaven. But I just thought it was an interesting journey. So what is the context of this letter in terms of the audience it was written for? Well, well the subject matter, the, the way the arguments are formed, give us a clue, because the author comes at his thesis, or her thesis, with two audience members in mind. The Greek, who believe that we live merely in the shadow and the semblance of what is true, that truth is out there, but it's beyond us. It's out there, but it's beyond us. We live in a type and a shadow of what is true. And this was the philosophy. Uh, Cicero, the Roman statesman, writer, and order, he said this. We have no real and lifelike likeness of real law and genuine justice. All we enjoy is a shadow and a sketch. This is the Greek philosophy. This is the Greek perspective that we don't have 
The real thing in this life is just a shadow and a type of something outside of our grasp, something on the other side of a metaphorical veil. Now, he wasn't far off considering he wrote this prior to Jesus' life, about 150 years prior to Jesus. And, and, and the biblical worldview, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians, says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So he wasn't, Cicero wasn't very far off when it came to this reality that we live in a shadow of what is true. For the Greek reader and listener, the message is this. Jesus Christ is the bridge in this world that brings you from the semblance and the shadow into the truth. I'm going to read that one more time. Jesus Christ is the bridge in this world that brings you from the semblance and the shadow into the truth. So that was the perspective. The writer of Hebrews is making an argument for the Greek perspective that Jesus is the bridge into what is true. Then there's this idea that Jesus is the carbon copy of God. In fact, in their opening statement, the writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The writer of Hebrews is referencing Jesus here, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth, who would have walked the earth literally one generation before this audience. The exact imprint of his nature. Now, I want to be careful without stealing too much from Marcus's sermon next week because he's going to be taking us into the opening remarks of the, from the writer of Hebrews. But the word here, imprint, is character. Character in the Greek, which, which means to engrave. To engrave. Who's ever, who, who's ever cast a die here? Anybody? You work with dyes? And when I'm talking about dyes, I'm talking about uh, things that are created and then when you inject plastic or metal or whatever and you let that cool and you pull the dye apart and you have an exact imprint, you have an exact replica of that dye. This is the word, this is the language here. The point that the writer of Hebrews is trying to make that Jesus is the perfect character, the perfect engraving, the perfect die cast of God. So in other words, Jesus reveals God to humanity. This is a big deal for the Jewish audience. This is a big deal for the Jewish audience because up until this moment, all they had in revelation of God was the traditions of the witness of God leading the Israelites through the wilderness and into the promised land and all of those stories, but also the tabernacle, the temple. All they had was the law that gave them an idea of the holiness and the character of God. 
Up until that time, all they had was a sacrificial system that had to be done over and 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 over again for thousands of years. And so in this moment, the writer of Hebrews is telling them, Jesus is the revelation of God. So whether the author is speaking to the Jew or the Greek, the message is Jesus reveals God. Jesus reveals God. But remember, the author is writing to the Jews as well as the Greek listener. And, and there's a little bit of a tweak in the Jewish perspective. Because they had this understanding of the realities of God as creator. They knew the stories of God revealed to their people over the years. You know, the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, the Ark of the Covenant, which represented and expressed the glory and presence of God. The mystery wasn't what is beyond the veil. They already had language for what's beyond the veil. The mystery was how do we get there? Now remember, the Jewish people had been walking in this law for thousands of years. They've been walking in this sacrificial system for thousands of years. And after thousands of years walking in a sacrificial system, you begin to realize that it's incomplete. Because you have to do it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Every year the high priest had to go in. Every year they had to bring sacrifice and atonement for their sins. Every year they had to walk in the practices of the festivals and the feasts. But they had to do it every year. Because it didn't last. It didn't last. There was no finished work. And so for the Jewish perspective, the question isn't what's beyond the veil. The question is, how do we get there? How do we get beyond the veil? How do we know God? We'll discover that the writer of Hebrews is looking to convince the Jewish people that Jesus is the great high priest and sacrificial lamb simultaneously that would make permanent and finished access to God. He was the bridge that was going to bring them from outside of the temple, outside of the courts, outside of even the inner courts, into the holy of holies, into the very presence of God. Raymond Brown says this about the book of Hebrews. He says, The letter to the Hebrews begins by asserting the greatest single fact of the Christian revelation. God has spoken to man through his word in the Bible and through his son, Jesus Christ. In Christ, God has closed the greatest communication gap of all time, that which exists between a holy God and a sinful man. In Jesus, that communication gap was closed. William Barclay, he references the author's intent this way. To the Greeks, he says, you are looking for the way from the shadows to reality. You will find it in Jesus Christ. To the Jews, you are looking for that perfect sacrifice which will open the way to God, which your sins have closed. You will find it in Jesus Christ. Jesus was the one person who gave access to reality and access to God. That is the key thought of this letter. So what does this mean? 
It's interesting, as I was reading and studying for this, I came across, uh, it was a bit of a peripheral writing uh, when it came to this, this content, but it was in reference to Hebrews, and it was talking about just the different ways that people come to God. Did you know that there's, there's different ways and there's different motivations for people coming to Jesus, coming to God, walking out that ex- exploration of faith? Like there are those that are intellectually curious, and so some will come to Jesus and come to God intellectually. They'll look at the arguments, they'll look at the facts, they'll look at the historical accounts, they'll look at the, the letters and the scriptures, and, and they'll access God initially that way. Uh, some of you in your room, you, you came to God because of feelings. Maybe you're more artistic, a little more emotionally driven. Um, and you came to God because of experience. Experience brought you to God. You had this revelation and moment of experiencing his presence, experiencing his, his glory, and it tweaks something in you to begin to ask questions and to seek and ask, who is this Jesus? Who is this living God that loves me? What's interesting about the writer of Hebrews is he's coming at two very different vantage points. He's trying to open up this structure in which two very different audiences can still access Jesus and still begin that journey of faith. And maybe you're in this room, and sometimes, you know, particularly in our, in our Pentecostal distinctives, we can get very preachy. Uh, we can be very, maybe, if, if we had a scale, uh, the, the Pentecostal tradition at times can be a little bit heavier on the experience side maybe a little lighter on the cerebral, intellectual argument side. And maybe you're here today and, and you've been exploring faith and, and we're trying to tip that balance a little bit for you. We're trying to take you on a journey. But whatever your motives for exploring faith and pursuing God, it will ultimately lead you to the conclusion, and I believe this with all of my heart, if you, take, if you take a serious journey, if you take a serious journey of discovering who God is and who Jesus is. I believe that you'll come to the conclusion that Jesus is the key to all of it. Not just to faith, but to life itself. To your very existence in this world. I believe if you begin to look at this world through the filter of Jesus and his teaching, and his ways, you will begin to have a framework that will work. I believe that with all my heart. And so for those of you, perhaps you're exploring faith in Jesus. Perhaps uh, you're on a bit of a journey, and you haven't yet stepped into the fullness of, of submitting your life to him, and that's okay, we're so glad you're here. We're so excited that you're here. And part of our community, you're welcome here. This is your home. But I believe if you take that journey seriously, Jesus is going to reveal himself to you in the language that speaks best to you, in the way that speaks best to you. And you'll come to the conclusion that this world makes sense through the framework of Jesus Christ. The truth will set you free if you engage it This truth will set you free. I'm going to ask the worship team to come.
and we are, we are done very early because, friends, I'm a preacher. I'm not a teacher. As we look back, we, we should have perhaps, Pastor Marcus and I should have perhaps switched. Because <laughs> Pastor Marcus has a great gift for, for teaching and unpacking. And, uh, but as they come, I, I want to just ask us to do something because we're starting something new and anytime we begin something we have a value at evangel that says we begin with amen we begin with amen surrounding all we do with prayer and so we're beginning something right now we're beginning a journey through a book that the word says is living and active so that means your expectation for the coming weeks and the coming months should be that this journey is going to be living and active in you by the spirit of truth. That's the expectation when we come to God's word every single time. And so we're going to begin with amen. We're going to begin this journey with amen. So if you're with, just bow your heads. So, Lord God, we submit this season to you. We thank you, Lord God, that you are involved in the preaching and the teaching of your word. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. We acknowledge your presence in this. And, Lord, as we set the groundwork for context, as we as we set the groundwork to be as uh, what Paul referenced, the noble Bereans, who didn't just take things at face value, but ask questions and establish context and put in the hard work of studying scripture. I pray, Lord God, that you would bless this season for your people as we put in the hard work of studying and showing ourselves approved. But Lord, we pray that in the midst of this journey, it would not leave us simply intellectually rich, but it would lead us to change. It would lead us to course corrections in our lives. For some in the room, and perhaps some that will be in the room later, or those listening online, who are yet to know you in a significant way, Lord, we pray that this journey would lead them to Jesus. That the revelation of your word, God, would change us. It would refine us. It would renew us. And it would tweak our path along the way. For some of us, just tweaks. For some in this room, perhaps 180s. So have your way. And everyone who's ready for that journey said, Amen. Amen.